0: Worship the Lord who created us. We are fearfully and wonderfully made and He is with us every step of the way in life
1: and He loves us He protects us and He guides us on the path of righteousness.
0: Were I to cross from land to land and sail afar by sea descend up Lord remains with me. Before the blood ran in these veins, the days ordained for me were written in your book, O Lord, before I came to Hatred, Lord of you Long though they scheme with ill intent Their days are number two How precious are your thoughts to me How countless, Lord, they are More than the shores have grains of sand More than the skies have stars Each anxious thought and lead me onward evermore to tread the path. sing life or death my lord remains with me Amen you made me see that Ms Amanda Metalman I work in the
2: Amen to that.
1: We have a couple of exciting announcements for you. We've got a resource of the month for this month of March, and it is The Gospel Comes with a House Key by Rosaria Butterfield. And so this is a really instrumental book in helping you think through biblically what it means to be hospitable, how to use your resources, how to use your home for hospitality. Romans chapter 12 tells us we are to seek to be hospitable. That that word in the Greek, seek is used in other context of like persecuting people. We are to be very intentional in seeking, hunting people to be hospitable toward them. That is what it means to show the love of Christ to others. And so this book will really help you think through biblically what it looks like to be hospitable. Does that mean you have to have a spick and span house or have the nicest dishes or the nicest food to be hospitable?
0: You'll find our resource center. There'll be a table
1: full of these books, and we want to make this available to you for free. So after the end of the service, please go and pick one up and be blessed by it. Ladies, March 10th, I believe, is the date for refresh. So mark it on your calendars. That's uh, this upcoming Friday. We encourage you to join us here in the Family Center for an evening of friendships and fellowship and encouraging one another in this season. There will be a delicious food prepared for you to eat. And our own Jen Hubert will be teaching on biblical friendship. A very pertinent and important topic in this day and age of social media and likes and, and all YouTube and all that kind of stuff. What does it mean to be a friend to somebody? So it'll be a really sweet time of fellowship and a good time of teaching. So we encourage you to set aside time to come to that. Men, your mission is to help your wives come to that. So watch the kids, feed them chicken nuggets, mac and cheese, and uh, then let your wives go and be blessed, and then you will be blessed when your wife is blessed. So before we continue singing, would you please join me in a word of prayer? Father, as we just got done singing, we are um, we're just so thrilled at the fact that you fe- we are fearfully and wonderfully made that you formed our inward parts, that you have crafted each one of us in your image, and we are all unique um, image bearers for your glory. We are also thrilled at the idea that you hem us in with your hands, that you protect us, that you're with us every step of the way. There is nowhere we can be in this world where you are not there to comfort us and to be with us. We are also humbled by the fact that you're with us everywhere. We know that you see everything we do. And so we ask, like the psalmist, like we sang, to test our, our hearts, test our thoughts, our attitudes, Lord. In light of your word, help us to examine ourselves. Help us to lay bare our souls in humility, seeking to find and root out sin to kill it. Help us to yearn for your word, to long for it like gold like money like precious silver to find it sweeter than any of the candy or foods of this world that we love and I pray Lord that we would discipline ourselves even in the days where we don't want to that we would yearn for your word that we would do it that we would commit to to uh, consuming it because we know that man does not live by bread alone but by the very word of God and I pray Lord as we think about these truths and 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 the the, the profound nature of them, and also in the songs we're about to sing that tell about your wondrous deeds, that you would help us to that loosen our lips to sing your praises, to exhort one another, to encourage each other with your word, and I pray that you continue to transform us through the preaching and teaching of your word this morning. We ask this in your son's name, Amen. Well, if you know songs that are modern day songs that are written based on the Psalms, are often compiled into what's called a psalter. So what we're singing this morning, we have a very salty morning this morning. We sing Psalm 139, we're about to sing Psalm 145, and then we're going to sing Psalm 150. But Psalm 145 says this in the middle, it says, One generation shall commend your works to another, and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. Would you please stand with us this morning as we sing aloud of the greatness of our God.
0: Okay. And the we. When we call out to you, you hear our cry. men you finally destroy your power will proclaim till christ descends and you will reign forever without end how great is the lord and greatly to be praised how great
1: This next Psalm 150 is a new song. So if you're not familiar with it, feel free to just listen for a little while and jump in when you feel comfortable.
0: You made the starry host. You traced the mountain peaks. You paint the evening skies with my earth it is your throne from desert to the sea all nature testifies your splendor
2: church. At this time, we will dismiss any children ages three to kindergarten to go to children's church if they so choose, or if you would like them to. They can head out the back, follow the pitter-patter of feet up the last set of stairs, and they will get the same gospel presented to them that we will be hearing this morning, but at a, at a more understandable, age-appropriate um, version. But with that, let's go to our Lord together in prayer. Our Heavenly Father and Almighty God, we come to you this morning, as we do every morning, as sinners in need of a Savior. We know what it is that your holy law requires, and we acknowledge that we have failed to keep it in, in thought, word, and deed, in our actions and in our inactions. But Lord, your word tells us that your law is good, and it is something that we should delight in. So please, Father, don't let your righteous requirements become a burden on our consciences, but rather give us grace under the burden of our sin, to be fully persuaded beyond any doubt that through Jesus Christ, the requirements of your holy law have been fulfilled on our behalf, and through his death, his burial and resurrection, and his ascension, that we have been delivered from the curse of sin and the sting of death. We read in Micah chapter 7, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? You have compassion on us, and you will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. This is good news for us, Father. So please, being fully persuaded by your true and living word, please grant us a, a quiet and settled heart as people who have been forgiven through Jesus Christ. And then daily turn our wills to be more like yours. Give us a desire to forsake the things of this world and to rest in your good grace. Lord, this week we've been praying for uh, our faithful gospel partner in in Grace Church in Morton. I'm so thankful for their continued prayers for us, and I'm eager to return the favor. I know from experience that this past week, through the, the really amazing ministry that they put on with the Upward Basketball program, that many hundreds of children have clearly been presented with the good news of your gospel. I'm so thankful for the the directors of that ministry, for the the very gracious and patient referees, for all of the volunteers, and for the faithful coaches that have been reliably discipling these kids week in and week out. And I pray that the seed of the gospel that was presented to them would fall on good soil. I, I know many of the kids are hearing your word regularly, but I also know many participating in the program, that this might be the first that they've ever heard of the forgiveness and peace that is offered through Jesus Christ. So please, please, Father, use Grace Church and use this unique ministry to draw these young boys and girls to yourself. We also pray this morning, uh, as we have all week, for our Go! partner of Focus, our brother Shane Knapp, serving at Salem Ranch over in Flanagan, We as a church are blessed to have been able to contribute to sending their director, a counselor, and their cottage leader to the recent biblical counseling conference in Lafayette, Indiana. Lord, I pray that you would use the the knowledge and the new skills that have been learned there in many mighty ways at Salem. This ranch staff has proven so faithful over the years, and we trust that you will continue to use them to minister to the young boys there. We also want to share uh, excitement and gratitude alongside Shane that there are three students who are nearing graduation from the program. We pray for the students and for their families as they prepare for what is sometimes a rocky transition back home, but we pray that the gains made in the unique seclusion of camp will follow them home. Thank you for Shane and his passion for mentoring and shepherding young boys and his willingness to step into some messy situations to show Love to these broken boys and help them grow into godly young men. And finally, Father, as we continue to worship you in song, please prepare our hearts to hear and receive your holy word as preached to us through Pastor Scott. Help us to hear it in such a way that we truly do understand and through that understanding that we would believe it. And then in believing it, We would follow through in all faithfulness and obedience, seeking to bring honor and glory to you in all that we would do, and we would be thankful for what it is that we have been given in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.
1: Well, as you all know, the Christian life is anything but easy. It's full of suffering at times. It's full of self-denial, self-sacrifice. Uh, Living as a living sacrifice for the Lord, denying yourself and your desires and you're crucifying your sinful flesh. But then it's also full of persecution for the sake of the gospel. It's full of trials and hardships that we are not to be surprised by. But even in the midst of all that, the Christian life is still full of richness, joy, and satisfaction in the Lord. And this hymn we're about to sing really draws all that out in a really sweet way. And in verse five, I just want to explain a little bit because there's a word that we don't use very often. At least, well, maybe you guys do. The word rapine. I don't know, maybe you throw rapine out a lot in your conversation. But that's not a word we use much. But in the context is the scripture says, so the, the verse says, soul, know thy full salvation. Rise over sin and fear and care. Joy to find in every station. So no matter what you're facing in your life, That cannot take away your joy. No matter whether you're old or young, sick, healthy. Something still to do or bear. Think what spirit dwells within thee. Think what father's smiles are thine. God's not neutral towards you. When you're in Christ, he delights in you. He smiles. He is pleased by you. Think that Jesus died to win thee. Child of heaven, canst thou repine? Can you complain? Can you be discontent? That's what it means. When you think about those things, in the midst of all the pain and suffering you go through, when you think about the Father's smiles, when you think about the Spirit that dwells in you, when you think about the joy and the pleasures of Christ, do you have any room left to complain? Would you please stand with us as we sing, Jesus, I, my cross have taken.
0: Jesus, I my cross have taken All to leave and follow Thee Destitute, despised, forsaken Thou from hence my all shalt be Perish every fond ambition all I've sought or hoped or known Yet how rich is my condition God and Him are still my own Let the world despise and leave they have left my Savior too Human hearts and looks deceive me Thou art not like them untrue Oh, while Thou dost smile upon me God of wisdom, love, and might foes may hate and friends disown me show thy face and all is bright go then earthly fame and treasure come disaster scorn in thy service, pain is pleasure. With thy favor, loss is gain. I have called thee, above Father. I have stayed my heart on thee. Storms may howl and clouds may gather. All must work good to me soul then know thy full salvation rise or sin and fear and care joy to find in every station something still to What spirit dwells within thee? Think what Father's smiles are thine. Think that Jesus died to win thee. Child of heaven, canst thou?
3: Amen, and thank you for ministering to the hearts of one another through your mutual singing. Right? These songs that we sing are a means of encouragement in the faith, and so when we think about what we just sung there, I mean, this, this is one of my favorite songs. It reminds us of the fact that as Christians, we are pilgrims on this earth, and the road is long. Time's road is hard, uh, but the good news is the Lord is seeing us home to our final resting place together. And One day, what is lived out now by faith will be fully realized by sight. And so it's such a beautiful picture as we think about what we've just sung, but also what Paul has been putting before us in our study of Philippians so far uh, these last couple of weeks. So I want to encourage you to open your Bibles this morning to Philippians chapter 1 as we continue. Uh, make sure that they get one in your hand so that you can follow along with us this morning. We value you being able to uh, follow along with us today. Also want to remind you that at the end of our service, we will be partaking in communion together. And so if you did not grab any of those communion elements on your way into the room this morning, no worries. You can certainly get up at any point and grab those. We're going to stand in a moment to read God's word. And so if it's easiest for you to do so, then please do so. Uh, But we'll pass out some later if you prefer to stay in your seats. The last couple of weeks have been quite the journey as we've been tracing Paul's letter here uh, to the Philippians, helping them uh, really understand the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord and how that changes so much of the mentality and the mindset that we adopt as Christ followers. And today is a remarkable passage Uh, It feels weird to admit this, but there's a thing in pastoral ministry called text envy. Text envy is when you see passages that are on the horizon and you say to yourself, I want that one. And guess what? I got that one. So... We have an amazing one before us this morning. I am excited to jump into it together as we really solidify why Paul is able to say the things that he says here in this great letter. So if you are open now to Philippians chapter one, we're going to be picking up in verse 18 18 this morning. So if you would please stand in honor of the public reading of God's word as we read from Philippians chapter one, starting in verse 18, which you'll notice... Uh, starts actually in the preceding paragraph, and we'll talk about that a little bit more later, why that is. But we're going to pick up in verse 18 for the full context of what Paul is saying here. So, Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 18. Paul says, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So reads God's word for us this morning. You may be seated and let's ask for the Lord's favor as we go into our time of study. So Father, now we do indeed uh, entrust our time to you. We are asking now that... The words of my mouth, the, the meditations of our hearts together would be pleasing to you, that you would be glorified. And Lord, we know that what would bring you glory is that the, uh, the seeds of your truth that are planted in our hearts would bear much fruit, that you would change our lives that we would be transformed into from one level of glory to the next as we behold the glories of Christ Jesus. And so what we are praying for is supernatural. It's not just something that we can do. There's no uh, incantation or formula of things that I can say to produce that. Lord, that is solely what you must do through the ministry of your word, through the power of your Holy Spirit, for the glory of your name. So we pray these things now in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I can still distinctly remember the day that we got the call. Ironically enough, it was Father's Day, June 16th, 2019. My wife and I were at home, it was a Sunday afternoon, we were resting after an extremely long Saturday that we had spent with a group of our seniors that had just graduated. We had spent literally the past 18 hours that day in the Wisconsin Dells enjoying our time of celebrating their uh, great accomplishments in, uh, in school, had enjoyed a wonderful morning of worship together. At church, but we were pretty pooped by that afternoon and lounging around, just recovering and recouping after the busyness of the last 24 hours. The the phone rang, and the voice on the other end of the line was there to present us with an invitation. It was an invitation for two beautiful little girls to be invited into our home. I remember the emotions of that day, that call, and the ensuing hours, all the internal panic that was going on in my mind, all the questions that were running through my head, all the changes that were about to take place, and all the arrangements that needed to be made in in order to accommodate. To say that this day and this moment in our lives was life-changing would be a severe understatement. Many of you can relate to life-changing experiences like this, whether it is the birth of a new baby into your family or the death of a loved one who you have known for generations. You remember how they shape your, your thoughts, your actions, even your perspective on life. Such is the idea that Paul puts on display for us this morning when he considers the life-changing relationship that he has with Jesus. And that is because your whole perspective changes when Christ is your life. When Christ is your all, when Christ defines who you are, in other words, when Christ is your life, Your entire perspective changes on everything. And this is really what Paul is going to lay out for us in these verses and why he's been able to say so much of what he has said so far in this letter. Verse 18, as I mentioned at the outset, serves as kind of a a transition for Paul in this opening letter. And it feels kind of weird that it's split between two paragraphs. And we ask ourselves, why do the Bible translations do that. Why is there a, a, a split thought here? And I think that's because what we see here is Paul explaining something that is both past and future. Notice what he had said in verse 18 at the start. He had talked about the reasons why he could rejoice in the Lord, but now what he is talking about in the second half of this verse is why he will continue to be able to rejoice. This is a continuation of his larger mindset from verses 12 to 26 that aims to see Christ as the center of all things in your life. Paul is providing the Philippians and us by extension with a gospel mindset that says, no matter what comes next, no matter what lies ahead of me, my goal and my desire now as always, is to make Jesus big. To put him on display. In fact, Christ is the the passionate focus of Paul in this section. Five different times mentioning the person of Christ. It's Paul's way of saying that when Christ is your life, everything changes. And that is what I want to help us see together this morning as Paul gives us three life-changing perspectives for when Christ is your life. So let's dive into that together this morning, beginning with this first thought. When Christ is your life, you rejoice to make much of him, not yourself. When Christ is your life, you rejoice to make much of him, not yourself. This thought comes to us in verses 18 to 20, and what is being expressed here is an ambition to live faithfully in light of challenging circumstances. After all, these verses remind us what Paul is facing at this point in his life. He's facing an imprisonment and an upcoming trial in Rome before the most powerful leader in the known world. And from the context, we can gather that it is fair to assume his life is somewhat hanging in the balance. It's on the line right now. But similar to what we saw last week, Paul is not embittered by his situation. Paul is not trying to lobby for support to get him out of prison. No, rather he sees his situation as God-ordained and actually as a means that God is using for greater gospel advancements. It's a situation for the name of Jesus to be made known to others. That comes not just through what he says, but how he lives his life. Look at how he expresses this in verse 20, the desire on his heart. He says, it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. You see, when Christ is your life, you desire to live a life that is exempt of shame. A life that is exempt of shame. What does Paul mean when he talks about shame here in this context? What is his concern? Well, to us, shame is often associated with emotions, uh, something that someone has done or something that has been done to us, the wrong or the, the bad feelings that we have that come from that. But the biblical idea of shame is one having more to do with trust, about living a life of faith and trust in the Lord. So look at the surrounding words here. He has expectation. He has hope. He has confidence. He has courage. Paul is saying that his life is one that displays ultimate trust. And he wants that trust to continue in the Lord. Trust that is not self-reliant. It is not a trust that is uh, self-arrogant in one's own abilities. Rather, it is completely submitted to the authority of King Jesus. And because of this, Paul is confident that this will turn out for his Deliverance, Not physical deliverance from prison, but actually this is a word that means salvation, uh, ultimate salvation. In other words, he has in mind here this, uh, this concept of vindication. That when he stands before the Lord one day, he will not have to be ashamed of how he lived his life even in the hard moments. That he lived his life consistent with the faith that he proclaimed. These are almost the exact words of Job in Job 13, 16, where Job is pleading his case before the the Lord and before his friends that uh, his life will be one day vindicated for how he actually lived in response to the trials that were before him. You see, a life that is without shame is a life that is lived in complete trust of God, even when life gets difficult. A life in which trust and faith are not called into question. that when people look at you, they know, yeah, their confidence is sure. But it also looks like a life of exalting Jesus. Paul here is able to rejoice that his life is not built on self-preservation. For so many of us, that is the goal and aim of our life is self-preservation at all costs, whatever we can do. So where is his joy found here? What is his aim in verse 20? It is that Christ would be honored in his body. That Christ would be honored in his body. Paul understood the truth that his life was not his own. Rather, he was an instrument in the hands of a gracious God to be used however the Lord saw fit no matter where he was. His body and all that he did with it was a vehicle for either bringing glory or shame to God. It was a giant magnifying glass that was to be used to make Jesus look big no matter what. Certainly we see or we have seen how this can be true of the Christian life. Your words, your actions, your ambitions... All of these communicate something about either your trust in Christ or your failure to trust Christ. Whether you desire to make much of him or to make much of yourself. And the amazing thing that Paul is admitting here is that Christ can be honored in his body both in life and in death. Which is why if Christ is your life. You are torn between living and dying. Here in verses 21 to 24, Paul brings us face to face with a dilemma that I'm going to be willing to guess very few of us really consider. Paul here is in a struggle between what he prefers between living and and dying. Uh, which he would prefer at this point in his life. The original language of these verses is actually very jumbled. Because Paul himself is, is in a wrestling match in his mind. And he's trying to uh, spill out his thoughts onto paper. And you can see that, yeah, he's, he's really wrestling with something here. The decision is not clear cut. Like a proverbial game of ping pong his mind goes back and forth between two different possibilities that are very legitimate that he could be facing whether it be life or whether it be death do i desire to live do i desire to die life looks really good death looks really good But the surprising thing for us, like the Philippians, as they watch this battle unfold, is that Paul legitimately does not know which he would prefer. He doesn't have a choice in the matter. But he says, if I did, I'm not sure which I would choose. How can this be? It's because Paul has adopted the mindset of a heavenly citizen who still understands that they are a sojourner and stranger on this earth. And what is that mindset? He says it right there in verse 21. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So what does Paul mean by this? As we break apart what he is saying here, he says, on the one hand, personally, death is far better. Death is far better. Look at what he says in verse 23. I am hard pressed between the two My desire is to depart and to be with Christ for that is far better. Now, when he uses that phrase far better there, he's using something in the Greek language called an emphatic superlative. I say that not for you to remember, but to understand that sounds really cool and really important and it is, right? Emphatic superlative. In other words, it is surpassingly greater, It's not even a contest about which of the two is the better option. To be clear, he does not see death as the lesser of two evils. He sees it as the greater of two goods. Now, one thing to to note that's important here is that Paul is not saying this or expressing this idea because he sees death as some form of escapism. As if this is finally the option that will release him from the pain and the toil and the hardships and the sufferings of this life. He understands that it will, but that's not his motivation. That's not what is driving him here. After all, we saw last week in verses 12 to 18 that he sees these trials, he sees these hardships, he sees these challenges as actually greater gospel ministry opportunities, so, he's not seeking to just get out of them because they've gotten too hard. It's not a death wish or an expression of dissatisfaction with this life. It is simply eternal perspective. It's eternal perspective. The gain for Paul was not that, man, by dying, I'm going to get my new resurrection body sooner one that's free of pain, free, free of, of, of hardships, even though that would be pretty great, wouldn't it? The gain for Paul was not that he would get to depart and see the, the, the pearly gates of heaven and all the beautiful landscape, though I'm certain that would be pretty amazing as well, wouldn't it? So what is the gain for, for, for Paul? Why is it that he is so ambitious to depart from this life? The gain for Paul, verse 23, is Christ himself. Why does Paul see this as far better? Because Jesus is far better. I wonder if so often we don't long for death because we don't long for Christ. This this longing for death and this longing to depart from this world is because Paul, above all, wants to be with Christ. Christ is the surpassing worth for him. You see, this world that we live in, it teaches us to avoid death and the prospect of aging as if we're getting closer to death at all costs, right? Right? Every week, it's a new diet and exercise program to prolong your life. It's new advancements in medical treatment or medical technology to prolong your life. Things to make you look younger so that you don't have to uh, uh, face the reality of getting older. Things like, you know, anti-aging cream or just-for-men hair coloring. Whatever it may be. Now, to be clear... I understand the importance of some of those things. I value good diet and exercise to be a good steward of your body. I understand the idea of medical treatment, to be able to stay longer on this life, to minister more. I don't understand that just for men, okay? Just let the gray show, guys. It's okay. You see, but for Paul, the prospect of death is actually a grace gift And it would be the clear winner in this situation except for one thing. Relationally, life is more necessary. Death may be far better, but life is more necessary. Look what he says in verse 24. To remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So before you go thinking that Paul is just sitting by himself, buying his time before he departs to heaven, look at what he says here. While the Lord has me here on this earth, my life is to be poured out for your greater good. In fact, he specifies it back in verse 22 as fruitful labor. So to be clear, Paul acknowledges that staying alive will mean work. Doesn't mean leisure, doesn't mean play, doesn't mean ease, it means work. But he sees it as a good and an honorable and a rewarding work. It is a work that directly benefits the the Philippians. It is a work that is expanding the gospel throughout the Roman Empire. It is a work that seeks to magnify Jesus at all turns of life no matter what he faces. After all, that is what it means to live is Christ. If we were to go back there for a moment to verse 21, the interesting thing is with that short, powerful sentence is that in the original language, there are no verbs. In other words, it literally reads, to live Christ. To live Christ. That's why we have to supply the idea of what is the action here? To live Christ is Christ. Which we naturally wonder, so what does that mean? What does it mean for to live is Christ? And I think the answer to that question is to just go back and read through verses 12 through 26 and look at the life of Paul for just a moment. What did it look like for Paul to live is Christ? Quite simply, life is about Jesus, not yourself. Paul used every moment, every opportunity for the greater good of the gospel and the lives of others and for the glory of God. That's what it looks like to live is Christ. To live in such a way that it always points people back to Jesus. Jesus. Do you think that you could truthfully echo Paul's mentality there in verse 21? I'm curious if you were to be honest with yourself this morning. I wonder how you would answer the following phrase that for me to live is blank. For me to live is my job. My work. My work is my life. For me to live is personal safety. Maybe to live is financial security. It is to secure that retirement and that lifestyle that I've always wanted. For me to live is my family. They are my all. Young person here this morning... I wonder how you would answer that. For me to live is peer approval. For me to live is my grades, my accomplishments in school, my accomplishments on the athletic field. For me to live is the amount of likes that I get on my social media page. For me to live is popularity perhaps for some of you, you could say that for me to live is Christ plus something else. But that plus is maybe growing increasingly larger for you. On the flip side, how would you view death? For me to die is what? For me to die is loss? For me to die is defeat. For me to die is scary. For me to die is to be avoided at all costs. Church, you send an important message to the world both in how you embrace your living and in how you embrace your dying. Paul's message to us here as it was to the Philippians, is that you have a golden opportunity to make the most of both. So use it well. Because when Christ is your life, you are torn between living and dying. And then finally, when Christ is your life, you strive for the joy and progress of others. Here, Paul further specifies what he just mentioned up in verse 24 about, their, uh, about remaining, uh, being, his remaining being more necessary on their account. What's interesting here is that Paul seems to have an idea of what is about to happen in his upcoming trial, even though he just presented it previously as kind of a mystery. I don't know if I'm going to be able to live or if I'm going to die. And yet here, he seems to have a hunch. He seems to have a, a confidence of what is actually coming. In verse 25, he says he is convinced that he will remain on this earth rather than be given a death sentence. How he has that confidence, we do not know, but Paul does know what he, Paul does know is what God wants him to do with the time that he still has remaining. And the answer is to invest it back into the people. By remaining in this life, Paul is resolved to continue alongside the Philippians for their progress and for their joy in the faith. And such is what God expects of us all. Uh, The Lord wants us all striving alongside one another for the joy and progress of the faith so that others would be more mature in Christ. It's the idea communicated by that word progress. Many of you are familiar with the idea or the concept of of progress. Young person, you might have brought home uh, a sheet, a paper called a progress report from your teacher to update your parents about how you're doing in school and what are the areas for greater growth and change moving forward. Many of you have undertaken home renovation projects in your house and so you can maybe gauge slow as it is maybe the progress that is being made from where it started to where it now is. The idea is that something or someone is always moving towards greater completion. And back in chapter 1, verse 6, we learn that the Christian life is a work in progress, right? God is working on us to bring to completion that which he started. And yes, it is the Lord's work. But the cool thing is that he invites us into that work to be used by him for the good of other people. In other words, we are his fellow instruments to help refine and to sharpen and to shape one another. The goal of this Christian fixer-upper, if you will, is that we would look more like Jesus together. In fact, Paul spells out his ministry in Colossians 1.28 where he described it as presenting everyone mature in Christ. I love that mature language. It's the idea that something is is ripening. It's it's going towards its ultimate goal. Just like a kid going to a teenager, a teenager to an adult, maturity takes time and it takes efforts. It's a labor of love for sure. And God invites us all into that process together so that others may be satisfied in Christ. Paul considers himself here a worker for the joy of others. If if progress had to do with their advancement of the Christian life, this has the idea of their experience of that advancement. The attitude in which they approached it. Paul's delight here is to help them delight in Jesus and to develop the same mindset that he himself has displayed so far in this letter. And here's the really cool thing that Paul is, is saying here. Get this. Don't, 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 don't miss this. Paul is saying he is willing to forsake his ultimate joy, which is to depart and to be with Christ forever. He is willing to forsake his greatest joy in order to work towards their greater joy right now. Ha <laughs> That is the heart of sacrificial service. That is what it looks like for the world to know that you were disciples of Jesus by your love for one another. When you are willing to forsake what could be for what really is right now. Paul knows that this anticipated reunion will be a cause for great celebration. But even more important, it will be a cause for these people to glory in Christ Jesus. Because that is the perspective of Christ-centered living. And so as we take everything that that Paul has put together here for us this morning, there's a few key takeaways that we need to think about together. The first of which is this, following Jesus means denying yourself. Following Jesus necessarily means denying yourself. Self-denial is at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. Jesus himself said in Luke 9:23, "If anyone wants to come after me, in other words, if anybody wants to follow me, he must first do what? Deny himself." He must deny himself. That means denying your self-centered ambitions, denying your self-centered dreams. Denying your self-centered actions. Denying your self-centered pity. Denying your self-centered relationships. The reason being because you are no longer the center of your life. Christ is. The Christian life, church, begins with death. It is made possible by the death of Christ, but it is fully realized when you die to yourself. So that you will follow him. Secondly, as hard as it is, death is a victory for those who are in Christ Jesus. We're reminded today of the very same truth that is expressed in Psalm 116 verse 15 that says precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. This is where we have to remind ourselves as Christians that death is not a defeat. Though we as Christians can genuinely grieve the loss of fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. We do not grieve as those who have no hope. We do have hope. And the hope that we have as a Christian is that death is not the end. Death is the enemy that has been conquered. When Christ is your life, death has no victory. Death no longer has its sting. Sure, there may be sorrow that lasts for the night or for several nights. But joy is always supplied because we have this hope that Paul describes here this morning. Therefore, we do not fear death. We do not run from it. We welcome and embrace it in God's perfect timing. Third, ministry is work. Ministry is work. But it is good and it is rewarding work. Paul makes it very clear in this passage that ministry is labor. It's intensive. It's very similar to the work of a farmer. I am by no means a farmer. I lack every necessary skill to grow anything it feels like but i relate to the work that the farmer does i know enough farmers to know what is required to do the job it's slow at times it's tedious it's it's certainly dirty and it will test your patience but the time invested is good and rewarding and necessary And the cool thing is that God invites us all into this good work. So before you start thinking to yourself that this was just Paul's ministry work, after all, he was the professional pastor in this passage that's talking, be aware that Paul's mindset must be shared by all of God's people. It would be wrong to think that this passage is reserved for pastors or ministry leaders or just those among us who are the more spiritually mature or the spiritual elites how do i know that how can i even prove that from this passage we'll look back up at verse 19 for a moment what does paul say there how are these things accomplished for paul he says in verse 19 for i know that through what through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Paul acknowledges that even though this is his desire, this is not just his work. He needs help from outside of himself. He needs the prayers of other saints. He needs the strength of the Holy Spirit guiding and working within him to stand secure and steadfast in his faith. We know from other places in this great letter that they were providing financial support for Paul. There was partnership. There was work going on between the two of them. So do not be quick, church, to find an escape hatch here as if, oh, well, now I'm exempt from this expectation. And to be honest, why would you want to find an escape hatch? Why would you not want to involve yourself in this work? Why would you not want to be in the game? I remember how it felt in high school to sit on the bench in basketball while the game was going on because I would do anything to be in the game. The desire was there and the expectation was to be there participating in it. Church, consider how you can do that. How you can be in the game. Don't just... Sit back and expect others to do that work for you. Involve yourself. It is hard. I get it. But it is good and is right and it is needed for Christ in his church and for the glory of his name. As we consider finally here this morning, consider how Jesus strove for your joy and progress in the faith. Paul's gonna get to this a little bit later on in chapter two in verses five through eight where he says, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Paul himself, or Jesus himself would say in his own ministry, in Mark 10:45, that even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We've shared today that striving for the joy and progress of others requires sacrifice. And it requires sacrifice on our part. But here's where we must recognize that none of this is possible apart from the first and greatest sacrifice that Christ has already accomplished on our behalf. As the Son of Man, He came not to be served by others, but to serve others by offering His life as a ransom, as a full payment for the price of sin's eternal debt, something that none of us in this room could do. You see, Jesus' death was the greatest work for your joy and for your progress in the faith. And as such, it is the very reason that we can rejoice together this morning, which is exactly what we're gonna do as we enter into our time of communion now as I encourage you to rejoice in the life that has been given to you through Christ's death. Isn't it amazing to think that it took the death of the Son of God to bring us true life. And that's what we want to think about as we go to our time of communion now. And I would encourage you to start preparing those elements that you received on the way in uh, this morning. And for some reason you still don't have any. We have some men who can bring those baskets by. Just raise your hand. They can pass one along to you. But as you get that cup and uh, wafer there, start to peel back that top layer that'll help you expose that cracker. And This is where I want to remind you that communion is not just some ritual that we tack on at the end of a service uh, out of just a tip of the hat to tradition or because we just feel that it's something we need to do. Communion, church, is a key component of what makes a church a church. After all, the church is not a building. The church is a people. It's a fellowship. It's a partnership of people united in a similar cause. And communion is just another way for us to express and celebrate our common unity with one another. What is that common unity? It is the blood of Christ. While we do not share that blood amongst ourselves with, that runs through our veins, we do share in its covering for our sins. This is a wonderful blessing for us to partake in together, but it is also not something that should be taken lightly either. 1 Corinthians 11 warns against the spirit of division that might cause God's people to partake in an unworthy manner. So God's word would warn you not to partake today if you are not working towards unity with your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. After all, this is a a meal that shows our, our common union With one another how dangerous it would be to say that you have unity with God's people while simultaneously Contributing to division among God's people So give serious consideration to this warning of disunity and seek to make things right before partaking in this meal today With that I would encourage you to now grab those elements that you uh, Hopefully have before you at this point point ask you to peel back that top layer and grab that small little wafer, that little cracker there, and acknowledge that when we look at this thing, this is pretty tiny, isn't it? It's pretty small in size, pretty insignificant. You can almost see through it. But as small as it is in size, it is immense in value. Because what we have before us reminds us here of the body of Christ that was beaten and bruised on our behalf. So that we could be made right with the Lord. For the punishment that we ourselves deserved. It is the body that we all benefit from together. And so I remind you now of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11. Where he says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let us now partake together. Encourage you now to grab that cup of the juice there and peel back that layer carefully. As you do, be reminded this morning of the blood of Christ that was poured out for your joy and your progress in the faith. Apart from it, it is not possible Jesus himself promised that this was the blood of the new covenant that he was ushering in. The promise that we could be made right with God by putting all of our trust and all of our hope in the, for, in the sacrifice of Christ for the forgiveness of sin. Because apart from the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And so Paul himself then continues on in 1 Corinthians 11 to say in the same way, he also took the cup after supper saying... This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. And so let us partake in this symbol of our united faith in Christ together. Amen. Well, the only fitting way to respond to all that we have learned this morning is to pray. It is to pray that God would use our lives however he sees fit for the glory and fame of his great name. And so as we stand, let us sing this final song and let it be the prayer of your heart today as we surrender our wills to King Jesus together.
1: Would you please stand with us?
0: be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of Thy love. no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Take my will and make it thine. It shall consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward
1: to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus.
0: Take my heart, it is thine own. It's Shall be thy royal throne. It shall be thy royal
3: throne. It's been my prayer for you this week that you would truly understand what you just sang, uh, that prayer, right? that the Lord would truly be the one who reigns supreme in your life. After all, when it describes our heart there as a throne, a throne implies a king, doesn't it? It implies an authority, a figure who is, that we are submitted to, that our wills are subject to. That's where we have to remember and understand as Christians that our life when submitted to God is a good thing. He is not uh, like the kings of this world that we learn about in, in world history class. He is a good and righteous and fair king who is worthy of our all. That is what happens when Christ is your life and Christ reigns supreme. So thank you for the time this morning that we've taken to look at that together. And I just want to remind you of what a great opportunity we have this week, both as men and women in this church. Ladies, Friday night, Women's Refresh, such a wonderful opportunity for mutual encouragement. Uh, I've been told the men already had the babysitting taken care of, so you're good to go. You're free. Ladies, you get to return that maybe then the following morning so that your men are freed up to be able to go to the men's breakfast on Saturday morning over in Goodfield. We'd just love for you to be a part of that together. So make sure you sign up for those things, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. So as we close out our time together this morning, let's pray our benediction from Philippians 1, 9 to 11. We'll say it out loud as we conclude this morning. And this I pray. That your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. So that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. Having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And all of those who say that Christ is their life would say, Amen. amen. God bless you this week.